0: right hook podcast make business sense on the road with the mitsubishi outlander business the two-seater suv with low bik 200 euro vrt and a five-year warranty mitsubishi motors.ie
1: The show is the right hook. The station is News Talk and this is Shane Coleman filling in for George. Lots to come over the next two and a half hours, but we start this evening with Michaela McCollum. Now on Sunday night, as you're no doubt aware, she gave her first interview since her release from prison for drug smuggling almost three years ago. But it wasn't the first interview she's given to an Irish journalist since her arrest. Uh, we're joined now by Barbara McCarthy, a freelance journalist who visited Virgin de Fatima Prison, where Michaela McCollum was held in 2013. Uh, Barbara, you're very welcome to the show. Uh, look, we, we'll get to the RT interview in a moment because obviously a big reaction to that and a lot of that reaction, very negative. But just before that, how did you come to interview Michaela?
2: I was in Peru uh, working as a photographer. And obviously I knew that the girls were there and I also knew that there was another Australian prisoner that I was interested in in another prison. Now, at the time, people didn't know where they were. They were they were either in um, Virgin de Fatima or they were in Santa Monica prison and they're only down the road from each other. Santa Monica is a lot bigger and Virgin de Fatima is a small uh, prison with a kind of, a, you know, a typical kind of prison courtyard, very imposing walls, no greenery, nothing, and just a, a little kind of a snack shop area and a couple of tables in the kind of in the main area, you know. Whereas Santa Monica is kind of trees and it's got tables out and little tuck shops selling, you know, stuffed toys and all this kind of stuff. So I went to that one first, and then the Australian girl said, "Yeah, they're down in Virgin to Fatima." So I went down, had to get all my. Um, Stamps from Santa Monica prison, like removed. as if you're going into a nightclub, kind yeah, of yeah. Because I got about you get all these different stamps when you go into a prison. Obviously, they take your bags off, you, you have to wear a skirt that they have outside. Um, you, you can't wear any leggings, you have to wear a t shirt, and um, everything gets taken this off. This is your bar, your, drugs been smuggled, obviously, in, or anything, yeah. even yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, sure, so even bringing in a phone or a, you know, whatever kind of so. Um, Uh, money was the only thing that you could bring in my passport and some sweets or whatever, you know, you got outside a magazine. So they were very strict about that. And I'd already got stamps in Santa Monica that morning where I'd spent two and a half hours. And you get like a stamp for a suitcase, which means you're visiting someone who's been caught, you know, smoking drugs. And there's all these different stamps. And then I had to remove them because they didn't want, you know... The, the, the taxi driver pulled out some, I don't know, what kind of like, uh, what's that you use, paint stripper or something. And, you know, so we kind of scratched it off, me and a few of the ladies waiting okay. outside the prison so I could get into Virgin of Fatima. Um, and then I, I did, my hands were like, my arms were like raw red, you know, but they stamped them again with all the other stamps. And um, and then they asked me, oh, who are you going to see? And I said, well, I'm going to see um, Michaela. And, um, you know, it was kind of casual, you know, nonchalant. And they said, um, are you family? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because apparently, you know, I know a lot of people I'd met in Peru who were trying to get in to see our journalists and whatever, and they couldn't. Um, and then they were as surprised as anyone. So I just kind of sat in the courtyard waiting for them. And I was like, what am I going to tell them? Because I hadn't set up an interview as such, you know. So she didn't know you were coming? No. They didn't know I was coming. And they both came out, so, um, which by was boat, nice. By both, yeah.
1: you mean... Uh, uh, Melissa as well. Melissa yeah, as well, yeah, Melissa yeah. Reed, yeah. Yeah,
2: and they both came out. They kind of sat down I was like, look, and at the time I was a photographer, I wasn't actually, um, you know, I was just, I wanted to do photography and that's what I was doing there. And I didn't, you know, I hadn't written an article in a, in a, in a long while. And I said this to them, you know, because I didn't want to be like, hi, I'm," you know. So we just had a chat. I was there for two and a half hours. And how
1: did they just? How did they react when they saw you? Were they, were they suspicious? Or? <laughs> they
2: weren't because I was like, listen, you know, I was working there with um, the Christian Brothers, clarity and stuff. And I was like, I'm just here for a break. And I and uh, they said, you know, they hadn't been sentenced yet. So I said I wasn't going to do anything, write anything until they've been sentenced, which is you know, it could have had an impact on their mm. sentence, and I didn't want to do that. So it was only when they were sentenced. I I said, well, actually, you know, I've been there there, you know. Okay. So um, that was about seven weeks later. Um, so they
1: were, at this stage, they had, it wasn't long after their they arrest. They were there for
2: three months at that stage. Okay. Yeah, and they looked the way you'd see them in the, you know, in all the photos and everything. So I just told them a bit about, you know, the, 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 the you know, all the reaction and hype that it I even saw, I said I saw at one stage, Michaela, and, and uh, Melissa cans beside each other and stuff like that. And I told them about the two little girls that were dressed up as them and, you know, they couldn't believe half of it, so... And they did, I don't, they, you know, they couldn't what, believe they were. What like, did you
1: make of them, particularly of of uh, of um, of Michaela? Mi- what did you make of them?
2: I thought she was just like any kind of uh, late, you know, teen, early to kind of. She was nineteen, I think, at the time. Twenty. Yeah, you know, she wouldn't have been different to anybody you'd meet in in Ibiza or somewhere when you're. Yeah. I mean, I don't really engaging, pleasant. Yeah, or, pleasant, yeah. engaging. They both were naive. Yeah, na- naive, yeah, for sure. Um, you know. Uh, but, you know, funny as well and, um, you know, we talked about, because I'd been to betha before as well for like, you know, a month and a half so, you know, we knew a lot of the same places and yeah. the the way the, you know, even the Amsterdam, I think I'd been there before as well where she had, you know, worked one or two nights or whatever so we kind of had got chatting with a few kind of things that we were, you know. Uh, uh,
1: did you discuss... The crime, yeah. their their crime. I well, suppose. they
2: were reluctant at that time to just to give me too yeah. much information because they hadn't been sentenced yet, so yeah, they knew that if they did, you know. Yeah. So they, but there were just things that they said that they were like, "Geez, I wouldn't even know where to start," like because I didn't even know where Peru was, you know. So I do believe that you know this all happened while she was in Ibiza, uh, broke, and she met someone in this Amsterdam place because I was there and I, I just didn't like it at all because I, I just you know I just. I'm like, I'm too old for this anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um, you know, so if you're in that kind of mindset and you're surrounded by partying and blah, blah, but it's also really, really expensive in Ibiza. Um, I mean, to get into clubs is like 50 quid. Drinks are yeah. an extra tenner. It's expensive uh, accommodation. And she went there very late as well. So she probably didn't get any jobs handing out flyers and doing all that kind of stuff. So I'd say it, it came a situation, it would have started, you know, uh, with something along the lines of, oh, um, you know, you're gonna. Well, she did say she was going to accompany somebody from Barcelona. and That's kind of how it would have begun, and you know, and okay. she would have been offered. They, they wouldn't have presented her with the whole. Oh, you're gonna fly through yeah, no, you know. No. But she's already said that anyway. Tell us, um, like was
1: she was she fearful when when you spoke to her? Were they worried about their plight? Were they did they feel their security was threatened in any way, or were they reasonably okay? Yeah,
2: they were. I mean, they said um, there was just so many things that they kind of. Um, they were afraid, yeah. They, they were afraid of, you know, revealing, obviously, who the p- people were behind it, you know. Um, all the prisoners you meet, they never mention who they are. They just say, oh, a Colombian uncle or something, you know. Um, they they would never mention who they are because they've just been so scared. It's called the Wizard of Oz thing as well, where a lot of the cartels, they kind of say, well, we're not going to harm you, but there's somebody else who is much more powerful than we are, you know. They, they they pick these people very carefully. Yeah. Um, what
1: about in relation to other? Pri- I mean, was it an, was it an intimidating place, the prison? The itself? prison
2: of Virgin of Fatima of the three, it's the least intimidating. Now Ancon Dos is much more. In, it's a kind of a supermax facility, which is about two hours north of Lima. You know, um, it, they would have been where there would have been more kind of petty. You see, the the system approves you can go to jail for like a bag of coke or stealing a wallet. Just as much as you would for having 11 kilos of cocaine on you, you know, and then you're sitting beside basalt- somebody who's, you know, just murdered yeah. their husband. Uh, but you, you didn't
1: get the impression that they were worried about their personal safety when they were in that prison from, in, other, from other no, prisoners? No,
2: not in there. No, no. Not okay. in that prison, no.
1: Um, and I mean, they must have been, at this stage, they weren't aware how long they could get. There was a chance they could get 15, 15 years, years yeah. I presume. So they must have been very fearful about the future and what it held for them.
2: Yeah. Um we, I mean, their case, because it just, it just, there was so much attention on their case, even in Peru, funnily enough. And a lot of people were saying they might be made an example of, you, you know, like even people I met that were working in, in the other prison and stuff, you know, selling uh, food outside. They were like, yeah. oh, the two girls, yeah, there's a chance they could be made an example of, they could be getting 15 years. Up until then, you could get away with three years or something or four years. And that, that whole 6.8 years thing, that that only came in just around the time when they were in prison that's what you get now that's standard unless you carry more than 9 kilos of cocaine and then you get 14 years or 18 years or whatever okay
1: where um I suppose the obvious question to I ask: mean, Were you sympathetic to them after the interview?
2: After I was there, yeah. I mean, the thing is, if you're in prison, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're stuck, at a, it's really like um, claustrophobic. Yeah. You know?
1: No, they, we should say they had convic- They had carried out a, they had a, a very serious crime. A very serious, serious crime. crime, of yeah. course, of course, and one with consequences, obviously. With massive consequences, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Did you feel a certain sympathy? But they were. Them? I did, yeah. Notwithstanding, obviously, the, I did because the they're far away
2: from their family, um, and they're in. You're in prison, like horrible yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely horrible they, they showed me their cell I could kind of see it a little bit down I think they shared it with two other people um, but it, it, you, I mean to be to be not free you know yeah. it's but just awful
1: again we have to say they, they did carry out a, a very serious crime yeah, so, of course um, did, you, did you watch the interview the RTE interview mm. because I mean it's been quite uh, strongly criticised people saying it was kind of soft soaping and that she basically got a very easy ride in the interview
2: yeah, I think that might have to do with her parole conditions as well. Um they would have been advised not to talk about what uh the conditions were like in, in the prison and stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean the I know from another prisoner she said Ancondos is just the most horrible place. It's you know, it's like beds are made of cement, there's a toilet in the middle of the like a hole in the middle of the room. Um it was certainly no walk of the park. It was you, you can't compare it to somewhere like the Dokus, you know, where uh, the, this, Dokus the, cent- the Dokus the in, in Mount Joy, you know, yeah. it's a completely different it's actual cells and you know, it's an actual where the Dokus Centre is much more more kind of, you know. Yeah.
1: What um, what what do you make of the negative reaction? And it was largely a social media reaction, and social media can be a, a pretty remorseless yeah. and relentless uh, place. Uh, but it has been very negative. A lot of talk about her her physical appearance, how well she looked, and uh, so on. Yeah, well, she's twenty
2: three, you see. I mean, and she was always a makeup artist. I'm, like, I'm not su- yeah, I'm
1: not suggesting <laughs> she should she shouldn't have looked. Uh, <laughs> well, you well. bounce
2: back a bit more quickly, I think, when you're kind of in your early twenties. You know, yeah. than if you've been in your kind of mid forties or whatever. You're, you're, um, do you think the, think the reaction has been unfair? I think, I mean, they said, oh, she must have had her makeup done and she must have had all this kind of stuff. But I well, mean, you can see from her... it's not the stop her wearing makeup. Yeah, you can know see from her prison. previous yeah. posts on, on social media, she's always had lots of makeup in her hair and all that. She would have done that herself. She would have done um, hairdressing while she was in, in, in prison in Peru. So um, I don't think her appearance is, is neither here nor there. Of course, she's going to get dressed up. Her parents would have bought her something, or whatever. But um, in terms of it being soft, yeah, I don't know. I, I think because she's going to be spending the next nearly four years in Peru, um, I think that's why she would have had to you know she she has to be very careful like one journalist wrote why didn't she say who the cartel leaders were who the people were that got yeah. into trouble well, you get really shot incredible. if you do that I mean there's prisoners that's, that have spent seven years sitting in a Peruvian prison and then they walk out the door and they get shot by whoever they you know you, do, you can't rat on you know who who set you up and nobody cares about them Nobody, not one person has even asked any questions about those guys Yeah, there's do no you, investigation Did you
1: find her convincing just finally before we let you go did you find her uh, her uh, you know, her expressions of remorse and, and her acknowledgement that it was, what she'd done was very serious and it could have damaged oh, yeah, her life. Oh yeah, for sure. Did absolutely, you find that?
2: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I I'd, 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 I, think she's done her time. I think she's, and I think she's come out the other end. She was much more kind of a, a younger, you know, she's, she's grown a lot as a person from the interview. I mean, I only saw the, the same that everybody else saw, but having met her previously, I think she's grown, I think she's learned her lesson. I don't think she's going to do it again. You know, I don't know how long you want to punish people for. There's people that have murdered well, Some people,
1: Some people would say uh, three years for drug smuggling yeah. is a pretty life sure. sentence. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, but there's a guy in Thailand, he's going to get like 35 years or something for smuggling, uh, buying a big bar of weed or hash or whatever. That's too much then, you know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's, I don't know. I think I mean, she's going to have to stay there still. So she's still not free. You know, it's Peru is her prison now. Um, she can't, and if she comes back here, she'll have to go to prison again. Okay. So you know, it's 6.8 years of her life. It's not just three, just over three years. But I think genuinely that she knows what she's done, and I think she knows that it's a bad thing. And I don't think you know. I think it's it's it maybe the case highlights for people don't smuggle drugs. I don't okay.
1: Hope. All right. Absolutely. Uh, okay. We leave it there. Barbara McCarty, a freelance journalist and photographer, the first person to interview uh, Michaela McCollum uh, in prison. Thanks indeed for coming into us
0: the right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7 seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips MitsubishiMotors.ie
1: Okay, our next guest says there needs to be a greater focus on those in their 20s and 30s because they have borne the brunt of the hardships our country has faced recently. That's the view of our next guest, as I say, Rory Hearn, Senior Policy Analyst uh, with Tasked the Think Tank, and also a candidate uh, for the Shannon for the NUI panel. Um, Rory, you've been writing about this uh, in the Irish Times um, tell us why you think those born what is it after nineteen yeah, ninety four yeah yeah now, why have they been the hardest hit?
3: Well, I suppose they're called Generation Y or the millennial generation. And I suppose why I was looking at it is uh, I, I fall a year outside of it myself. But, you know, the... Where sorry, was 1980
1: lo- to the mid-1990s. 19, 19, yeah, sorry, born yeah. 1980 yeah. to the yeah. mid-1990s. Sorry, apologies,
3: yeah. Um, I suppose, like, the big things, the figures, I suppose, which were stark to me was looking at the emigration figures in particular. There was, at the high point in 2013, there was 50,000 people emigrating. Um, and last year, I was looking at the figures, it's still 35,000. And the overwhelming majority of those
1: are in... In their 20s and 30s. OK, let me stop you there because I, I actually don't disagree with your with your basic premise. I actually think the, the recession hit the youngest people the hardest. I'm not sure the emigration line is the strongest argument. though. Isn't it true that, you know, before people text in, I'm not saying it's the case for everybody, but isn't it true that a lot of people who have emigrated have done so out of choice? I mean, we saw that survey out last year that the vast majority of people who emigrated to Australia already had jobs when they left it's a lifestyle choice not for everyone I stress but for many of them
3: yeah, well, I suppose why I lead with that is good because it's an indicator of the you know, the issues that people are facing because you are right that a lot of people who left, who have left and are leaving have jobs and this is part of the issue. The big issue in, in terms of, you know, my generation experienced it and the younger generation is this whole problem of casualization or precarious work which is short-term contracts, low hours work, um, the the lack of prospects of career progression and a big issue is the lack of permanent contracts and why that affects people is because obviously you have the stress. Of, you know you wonder do you have a job in a few months time you can't get a mortgage um, you're planning to you know start a family you have to think about you know can you afford these costs um, and you know I think that there are other issues there that you know that I raise and particularly things like suicide and self-harm I've, you know the, the study was done by UCC which showed that you know through the, as a result of the recession and austerity that the numbers of um, you know young people in particular increased significantly as a result other issues obviously are the housing crisis a major issue And this is um, the, if we look at it, there's a much greater portion of younger people are reliant on the rental sector. Rental is now 30% of all housing tenure in Ireland. It was much less than that. Mm. Um, Because simply, obviously, people can't get mortgages. There isn't the housing there to buy. And so people are uh, paying these escalating
1: huge rents. There will be older listeners, sorry to cut across you, Roy. There will be older listeners listening to this saying, you know what, you think it's hard to buy a house now. Try buying one back in the early 1970s when you just could not get a mortgage. Interest rates were 14%, 15%. Doesn't every generation think that they have a toughest? Well, I suppose, you know, it is, it's not
3: saying that other generations didn't have a tough. And and it's important as but the context is that you know we are a much much wealthier country now than we were you know we had the Celtic Tiger boom um, and in many ways this generation is facing the costs of that Celtic Tiger boom costs that haven't really reduced but you know facing all this insecurity in terms of job prospects but you know and, and it isn't it shouldn't be it's not you know this isn't you know some sort of whinge about you know the younger generation you know just been left out you know these are real you know real issues in terms of people and, and I suppose it is important to highlight that it's not just you know in, in terms of highlighting this it's not just about this generation like if we look you know in actual fact the generation that's probably been most scarred by this is the even younger generation like that doubling in numbers of child poverty be- you know during the recession you know we look at the 1800 children in homeless uh, accommodation like you know talking about serious long term impacts on them so in highlighting this what I wanted to raise was there is an issue of generation inequality sorry the other area that um, is the whole issue of pay um, and particularly in the public sector that new entrants into the public sector are on a 10% lower pay scale Mm. generally than uh, colleagues and this is a major issue you know it's a clear um, inequality that's there you know teachers we're seeing issues with teachers for example they were highlighting at their conferences you know Manny not been able to um, you know to to get a mortgage to start a family
1: in you know in serious difficulty Um, and some people say in every company you know if the people just in will be paid less than the people who've been there five years yeah,
3: and but that's that's the case. But this is another new scale, a whole new scale that was introduced. So it's not just that they're on a lower pay scale, but they're on a proportionally lower, they're on a ten percent lower pay scale than existed if you started prior to two thousand and eleven. Mm. So it's a whole it's a whole other level of cut. Um, and I think that it, it is important because you know we are losing um, young people. You know, and you know when you talk about you know immigration, people are are making a choice to leave. You know, when you look at you know read there's an article in the Irish Times again today by, um, you know, a young woman saying she's living in London, you know, her uh, two sisters are in Australia. You know, she talked about, you know, I can't, we can't get work. And youth unemployment is still 20% um in Ireland. You know, there is issues there about the, But also people talk about the housing. Housing is a major, major crisis for people, um, both in terms, obviously, at the extreme end and in terms of homelessness. But in terms of people, you know, not being able to plan, you know, if you're on a, if you have a lease of only a year, you're facing another prospect of rents rising 10 to 15%. You know, your wages aren't increasing that much. People want to get a home They want to start a family And that
1: is a factor Which is pushing
3: people out Or pushing people Out of the
1: country as well Okay um, Text coming through At 5206 on this uh, Guys the hardest hit Must be those born In the late 60s Or early 70s Try two recessions In Ireland And at least one abroad um, Yeah well that, that's My generation I mean when When I came out of college In 1991 Things were grim But I suppose you, As you were saying uh, Every generation Thinks they have a tough uh, I think a really huge amount Of emigration of immigration system another listener Was ...optional in the last 10 years... ...plus those who left got good jobs this time... Uh, ...last time it was all building sites... ...I think there's pro- probably some truth to that... I, ...I'm I'm interested Rory... ...I, I do wonder about... The, ...the generation you're talking about... ...is some of it down to the fact... ...that they had higher expectations... ...because as you quite... ...you know fairly pointed out... ...they did grow up in better times... ...in more prosperous times... ...and there was higher expectations... And then the bubble burst, if you like, was that is that some of that is that that are they are they less suited or less used to hardship, I suppose, is the question.
3: Well, I suppose again I would come back to you know and I hate you know just throwing out statistics but you know youth unemployment as I said is still 20% you know it's not like you know young people are saying you know things are hard there's a very real issue of being able to get employment um, and one area that has traditionally been a very large area of you know new uh, school graduates uh, college or school leavers and college graduates has been the public sector and that's effectively effectively been closed for the last six years you know it opened up last year in terms of the embargo and um, in terms of you you know we look at the particularly um as i said the the emigration but i think that the issue you know you talk about you know young people saying that they're you know is it just you know another generation you know saying it's got it hard but there is as i said in particular this issue of casualization of work and this emergence of precarious work like i um, worked as a contract lecturer in um, in a university for a number of years And there was no prospect of me getting a permanent contract, not even not getting a permanent contract. But I didn't know if my contract was going to be renewed in six months time. And I was told it was because of the austerity cuts to the college budgets. They can't give out permanent contracts now. And I faced a very real choice. You know, what was I going to do? I have, you know, very young children. I face huge childcare costs and mortgage. Um, And this, you know, I'm now in in another job, which is a slightly longer contract. But I wanted to stay in academia, but I couldn't. And we're seeing this process of across the economy, this emergence of of this lower work short term work, yeah, casualisation isn't that
1: the reality of the way the world is going the idea of the job for life and staying in the one job that that just is gone and that you know it there's certainly cons to that but that's the reality and we just all have to get used to it
3: I, I don't think it should it, it it's you know it clearly is increasing and the, the you know the that trend of you know increasing low pay increasing precarious work is seeing in our cut, in our economy particularly in the 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 sectors you know like retail accommodation you know um, but we're also seeing it as I said in the public sector now at third level we're seeing it in the health sector um, and but it shouldn't be because you can't plan your life on that basis you know we, you're not creating you're not retaining talent as well this is a major issue that's talked about as well With particularly if we look at you know we want to attract the best to our teaching profession for example we want to attract the best to our medical profession, you know, if you're not giving you know proper you know permanent jobs at good wages, you're not going to keep people, and that's why people people are leaving as well. Um, and it is about building what type of country we have, and this is an issue of generational inequality. It is a form of inequality between the generations. Yeah. And uh, the other sorry to is cut across
1: you, you can't do that. You can't, I mean, you can't talk about Ireland in isolation, though. I mean, we are part of a global economy. We're probably the most open economy in the world. We can't hold back the tide of globalisation and we can't say, well, this is the kind of country we're going to build and we're going to do it regardless of what the rest of the world does. It doesn't work like that. But you can
3: aspire to be, in terms of developing, you know, policies, like if we look, for example, the rest of the world isn't just, you know, as a in, you know, uh, this problem of the race to the bottom. You know, if we look at the Nordic countries, for example, Sweden, Denmark, they have maintained, you know, good quality public services, high investment, you know, they have not um, had the same level, do not have the same level of precarious work as we have. There is a race to the bottom going on um, and Ireland does have to make a decision what type of society, because the other side of that race to the bottom is the rise in the wealth of the 1%, you know, and this this rise in inequality and we're seeing that in Ireland as well, you know, the, this, the, most, the majority of the income gains that have Gone to um, workers in Ireland over the last five years has gone to the the higher end of income earners, and we're seeing this trend of you know this high wage uh, you know sectors increasing their wages, and at the lower end it's either stagnating. And the question is, what type of Ireland are we creating? And more equal societies like the Nordic countries, Sweden, Denmark, they are better in terms of social issues, in terms of crime, in terms of people's general mental health, and that. Is, so there is this question, and I think you know I do want to say as well, all the generation clearly of this generation are not doing the same. Like you can look at groups within it. For example, lone parents, you know, lone parents of this generation have faced huge cuts are you know deprivation rates close to 60%? They're clearly a group who are much more affected than others who are in jobs, or there are those who are unemployed, or as I've mentioned, those who are homeless. So it's not just a case that it's a whole generation that's equally affected. You know, there is groups within it that are more affected than others. But I do think it is something we need to look at because if we are building trying to create you know, a sustainable economy, we do need to retain our young people and we do need to give young people hope because the other side of it is as you know, as the rubber bandits have said it. A lot of young people are either jumping in rivers or jumping on planes and that's not being funny. It's actually the figures are there. There's a huge increase in suicide and self-harm as a result of this lack of hope for a lot of young people. I mean,
1: look, I I don't uh, doubt for a second the issue of of, uh, suicide and how serious an issue it is. I think it might... Guess would be on by no means an expert that it runs a lot more deeper than the kind of economy we have at the moment i I think there are much more deeper issues at at play at that but look maybe maybe we might talk about that uh, another time kieran says i'm 30 i've known all my uh, uh, and all i've known for my adult working life has been austerity and unemployment among my peers Uh, that's undoubtedly true i think it was probably the same for the first 10 years of my working life as well in in the 90s that's not to lessen what people are going through just just very finally and one of the things that did surprise me and this isn't being critical of a general you know an older person being critical of a generation was when the bubble burst and re, you know, reading, you know, Generation Emigration and so on in the Irish Times and, and various blogs, how quickly people were, younger people who had known only good times were almost kind of saying this place is a kip, this place to a dump, I'm out of here. There was a kind of a, uh, that wouldn't happen, say, in America where there would be much more of a, a can do, we can work a way out of this. I was surprised that a generation that had known only good times were very quick. To sort of say enough, I've I've had enough of this place.
3: Well, I think that's part of an issue with Ireland that goes back, do you know what I mean, generations yeah. and and centuries it's in, it's in, in terms the DNA. of the, exactly it, the release valve, you know, and it suits the political establishment, it suits the you know those who are in positions of comfort that if young people leave, they're not a challenge, they're not a, a cost, and I think that. They weren't told to stay. They weren't given a message, stay and let's build, rebuild Ireland together. You know, we did have prominent politicians coming out and saying that, you know, the emigration, the famous example was the social welfare writing to um, young people outlining jobs that existed abroad there wasn't a, you know a country saying let's stay and let's rebuild this country together it was clearly you know the and the other argument that was put across again was this was a choice thing um, and I think there is I would say that there is a, an onus on young people to try and stay and rebuild Ireland and you know it's only when young people do stay That we will be able to, you know, put the pressure on because it is a release valve. A lot of frustrated, angry young people leave. If they stayed here, maybe we'd be able to change things differently.
1: Okay, good stuff. You can check out that uh, piece uh, on the Irish Times uh, website. Uh, Rory Hearn, senior policy analyst uh, with Task, and also uh, Shannon candidate for the uh, it's the NUI electorate. Yeah, Yeah, uh, thanks indeed for coming into us.
0: The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes. At your fingertips,
1: mitsubishimotors.ie. Okay, welcome back to the right hook, Shane Coleman standing in for George this week. Now, is it a bird? Is it a plane? Actually, it's a turkey. Have a listen to this.
0: Civil liberties are being trampled on in your city. People living in fear. He thinks he's above the law. The Daily
4: Planet criticizing those who think they're above the laws. Oh, hypocritical. What you say? Considering every time your hero saves a cat out of a tree, you read a puff piece editorial about an alien. You could burn the whole place down. Most of the world doesn't share your opinion, Mr. Wayne. Maybe it's Gotham City and me. We just have a bad history with freaks dressed like clowns.
1: OK, that was a clip from the uh, Batman vs. Superman uh, film, a uh, film that sparked massive discussion recently about the state of the superhero genre. The film has been panned by critics. It took big money at the box office on opening weekend, but then pretty much fell off a cliff in terms of taking to the point. Where some insiders are saying the film will not now make a profit. Uh, so we need to talk about where the superhero genre is headed to discuss this? We're joined by film lecturer Stephen Benedict. Uh, Stephen, you're very welcome. Thank to you, programme. Okay, I have to lay my cards on the table at the very outset. You're a Batman man, not a superhero. <laughs> <man. laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exactly yeah. I couldn't give a monkeys about superhero films. I just there's so many of them at the stage, I think it's gone beyond.
0: Yeah, I think it's rather sad that we've got two middle-aged men, and we are middle-aged, let's face it, talking yeah. about yeah. guys who wear underpants outside their trousers. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is not a a good reflection on the state of our society No, yeah, it isn't um, Look, firstly you've seen this film yeah. have you? What did you yeah. make of it? I wasn't impressed but then again you see I'm not the demographic and we were saying you were saying that the, the critics panned it and then people were saying critics are out of touch Critics are not out of touch They're talking about they're looking for a certain quality of film We should never equate the quality of the movie with the amount of money it returns to the box office If that were the case we, we would lambaste um, restaurant critics for not recognising the merits of McDonald's Right. They work yeah. different okay. sides of the street
1: Okay, Why I mean is there there's a particular reason though why this is under the spotlight and well one of them is the, hmm. the fact that the critics have panned it. The other is this conversation between Christopher Nolan and Richard Donner, Richard who directed Donner.
0: the first um, Superman movie back in 1970, and Christopher
1: Nolan would have would have been the director of the The Dark Knight, the, yeah. the
0: very very successful uh, rebirth, the rebeginning of, of of the reboot of the Batman uh, franchise. Okay, in the in this interview uh,
1: between Nolan hmm. and, and Donner, Nolan is quite critical of. Uh, I think I'm right in saying of the CGI. Of, of CGI and mm. the use of CGI and yeah. and he he thinks that it has damaged the quality of the superhero genre. Is he is he right? In yeah, that?
0: but also at the same time, it's not really CGI that is the issue. I think you know when Donner and Nolan were talking there, they talked about reality. Now you're saying to yourself, what sort of reality has allows men to fly around a city in capes? Okay, so they're talking about emotional credibility and how they ground the story in an emotional with its own emotional reality within its own internal logic because I mean CGI uh, comparatively speaking is not new I mean in terms of special effects if you go back to 1902 to the very very birth of cinema did you see the movie Hugo? Yeah. Right. That was about Georges Méliès and Mm. he's the father of the special effects in the fiction film yeah and he was creating special effects in the very very beginning there's certain people who believe that film should be realism and they're saying this isn't realism it's destroying the art of cinema it's part and parcel and sometimes we go to a movie for spectacle but regardless of whether you're going to movie for a spectacle like Gladiator or Star Wars, the greatest spectacle is the emotion that the movie grounds. And that's really what lasts ultimately because special effects age. They date, and if you yeah. look at the Lord of the Rings, some of the effects already are looking quite ropey. And if you look at Richard Donner's original Superman, I mean, Superman it's from '78, pretty ropey. You can it? almost see the, the the strings holding him up. Yeah. But if the movie is working emotionally, you des- you decide that you're going to overlook those little, shall we say, naive little moments. It's the reason why kids will still sit down and watch the original King Kong from '33 and Wizard of Oz. I had my two nieces over visiting a couple of years ago, and I said, "What I'm going to do for the afternoon." And I showed them The Wizard of Oz And the second Dorothy starts singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow With, a little, with her dog Toto They were locked in You could not shake them away From the cinema, from the screen Because it's emotional reality Is the nub of the
1: problem here or not There's just too many of these bloody films well, And if uh, you, the quality They're churning them out The quality is pretty awful They're pouring millions upon millions Into marketing And mm-hmm. there's not a lot really to them
0: well, Yeah I know But it, it depends what side of the street You're working on If you're a shareholder in Warner Brothers You're delighted Okay, because you can see the financial return, Batman versus Superman will make money. Will it? Absolutely will make money because you've got to think about it. And it's just not only in terms of the box office return. Yeah. We're talking about the residuals down the line from TV, from Net, from Netflix, from merchandise, Merchandising across the board. And I think that's the way to look upon it. We see films like The Avengers and they're saying The Avengers Universe and, and the Batman, Superman Universe. They're not universes. Call them what they are. They're warehouses. They're like Home Depot. You go to this film and they set up this universe, warehouse, for you to buy all the merchandising. So in actual fact, the film is an advertisement for the, for the merchandising, the computer games, mm. the, the onla- online gaming.
1: See, the worry I have, I mean, I, I know there are still good films being made and, you know, you look at the, the recent Oscars and there are some fine films mm-hmm. in there. But there does appear to me, and I, I'm not the expert here, you are, but just as, as a watcher, there appears to me to be far less good films being made now than say 30 years ago.
0: Well, uh, no, I think I'm always of the opinion that the same percentage of good films are made. There's, you know, 95% of films are landfill. They will end up in a landfill in New Jersey, mm. right? The five percent have always been made good movies that have been made. If you go back to the 1930s, there are actually more movies made in the 1930s under the studio system than there are today. But then you have television and if you look at TV, there's only five percent of television that's actually memorable. So I think really what we're talking about is the variety of different variety of films and the variety of films is shrinking more and more and more money is being spent on fewer and fewer and fewer films. So that's why you have Batman versus Superman, and eventually we're going to have Aquaman and The Flash and Wonder Woman all in this one movie. And I think that's the real problem that our audiences had. The real Batman and Superman aficionados who know the comic books were complaining that they tried to cram too much into this one film. So you actually have four films in one, Mm. which is a complete opposite of what happened with The Hobbit, which was, one movie stretched out to three films. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I mean, you said it at, at the outset and you're right that you and I aren't the target market mm. for this. But was the target market, I think with the growth of merchandising, yeah, the target market now always tends to be the, the very young Well, it's also And do we, do, as older viewers, do we not suffer because of that?
0: Um, yeah, but the thing is also we have certain people of our age who have not grown up and they buy the The little figurines, and they buy the the DVD sets and they buy all the comic books. And that is an absolutely huge market. The thing is, the reason why the studios go after that market is because they know it's there. So if you go after a movie like Spotlight, spotlight, the types of movies like Spotlight are not being made anymore. They're being made by independent producers. And the interesting thing about Spotlight is that they were made by it was made by participant media whom, as far as I remember, um the guy who set up eBay financed the film. And it's very, very interesting because the financing is new money with a new perspective. And it's taking away from what the studios are, which is old money and an old perspective. So if you want to go and see Batman, go to the studios. But if you want to go and see a film like Spotlight, you're going to have to go elsewhere. And I think that's the real problem. It's the lack of variety. The movies are just as good. Dark Knight, I think, is a terrific picture yeah in terms of in terms of any any terms i mean whether you look at it as a gangster picture, whether you look at it in terms of comic book movie or an action adventure film it's a really really well made yeah film. see but you know like i've no interest in going to see that absolutely i, have to say. I mean, and maybe mm. i maybe I'm in a
1: minority, but i want to see good drama, and mm. i don't re i mean i'm just and film first film that pops into my head and I think of that say uh, ordinary people which won mm. the the Oscar Academy back Award in yeah in 1980, in 1980. I'm not saying a film like that wouldn't be made nowadays. No, I it wouldn't. That...
0: It would be very, very hard. Yeah, the, the, the middle section of, of budgets, which is what I mean by that, is about you know between fourteen and thirty five million dollars are being squeezed. Out. The middle class of the movie industry is being squeezed out. Yeah. at the middle bracket, the mid, mid budget. If you want to make a movie, you've got to make it under five million, or you make it over two hundred and fifty million. Yeah, it's or you know I'm I, I exaggerating, of course, because a movie like Deadpool cost 57 million to make, but it is not the biggest grossing or rated picture ever. I think it's closing in about $750 million. A brilliant investment because they kept the, the budget low, but you're right. I mean, Ordinary People is a film that we very, very hard to make today. And in actual fact, it probably wouldn't be made for cinema. It would be made for TV. And then we they would do it as a long-running TV format. Like yeah, the, and then
1: yeah. there'd be a stupid second series though, or third series that's completely unnecessary just because it was popular. To me, it seems like it's much more about making a book than it was 30 or 40 years.
0: Ago. No, it, it, would, it always was. Th- that's the truth of it. Because the thing is, we, were, we seem to remember the 70s as the godfather Chinatown Cuckoo's Nest. The Sting American Graffiti mm. and they're brilliant. Hey, films. I know there was turkeys made, but in, then, back then, well, more than turkeys, you had films which are championing at the box office, like The Towering Inferno and Death Wish. Okay, and they made I'd still the,
1: rather watch the Taring Inferno than Batman meets Superman, though you know.
0: Well, I think we we could say that the Taring Inferno was the Batman of its day, or the the disaster picture was the was the action picture of the comic book adventure of yeah. the day because yeah, they, perhaps they, they spent enough, and they would also crowd in huge movie stars: Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, William incredible Hull, cast, yeah, William Holden in, into that. At the moment, maybe the problem, the wider problem, is that we've now shifted into a completely different universe, and I'm noticing as a t- as a lecturer is you're now dealing with the millennials and they've grown up not watching movies. They've grown up watching YouTube. So you try to explain to them about Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese and they have not heard of these people, but they know all about the cat with the, with the Hitler moustache. Yep. And they all know about Kim Kardashian and a photograph that broke, the, broke, not that broke the universe, broke the internet. And that is now their frame of reference. And that's what filmmakers are now ch- challenged to address. So these millennials enjoy movies like Batman versus Superman because it actually clues into their not only emotional temperament but their time temperament there's a there's a climax and a peak to the scene every 30-40 seconds something new which is the timing for a lot of YouTube clips Oh God
1: I find it all very depressing Alright Film Lecture Stephen Benedict thanks as Thank ever uh, for popping into Thank you Shane
0: the Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie
1: Okay, welcome back to The Right Hook. And now it is time for this.
4: Uh, Whose car is that out front? Mine.
5: 1970 Pontiac Firebird. The car I've always wanted and now I have it. I rule.
4: Aha, uh-huh, where's the Camry?
5: I traded it in. Yeah,
1: that's uh, Kevin Spacey uh, there in the movie American Beauty, a film that's uh, primarily about a midlife crisis. Now, is the midlife crisis real? And how much of a phenomenon is it? To discuss this, we're joined by Orlan Nelligan, editor, journalist and owner of Corner Shop Productions, and Brian Colbert, a psychotherapist and best-selling author of The Happiness Habit and From Ordinary to Extraordinary. Uh, Brian, I might just start with you first. Um, the midlife crisis, is it, is it real or is it in our midlife male heads? Okay.
5: Well, it's, it's both male and female for a start. Oh, um, really? Okay. And it is real. And it, it, women go through it a little bit differently in terms of they have a number of crises. Men generally just have the midlife one to, do, to deal with. Um, but in essence, it's very real for a lot of people. Some people may not notice it, but pretty much most people go through it in some form or other. So it's, it's really where we face old age. Where we move the transition from youth where nature gives us stuff to old age, where nature takes away things. And for men, we don't like that at all. We don't like to lose. We don't like to feel we're not in control. And midlife is all about that.
1: So is it, um, is it was it King Canute? Or are we trying to sort of hold back the tide? Is, it, is that what we're doing with old age?
5: Absolutely. And, and, and pretty much like, you know, we often talk about women being vain. Men are just as vain. Basically, they don't actually do it in the same way. Uh, they don't advertise it, but when, when a man thinks that he's no longer a man anymore, or he's not as strong as the next man, or he can't get as fit as the next man, he may have gone through a whole period of time saying, well, I don't choose to be fit. I'm overweight, but I don't choose to be fit. But if I wanted to, I could. And what midlife does, it takes that option away. And that's where a man feels challenged then from that. But by the way, that happens with women too, in terms of beauty, in terms of appearance, and, in terms of variety, and all of those types of things as well. So it, it is a two-way thing. It's not just for men.
1: Okay, um, Orla, you've been writing about this uh, in the Irish Independent uh, last weekend. Is it a phenomenon you recognise in in your loved ones?
4: Um, Yeah, I would say it definitely is. I mean, it came about, um, for me, my husband and I were sort of joking about the fact that he never bought the Harley he promised himself on his 40th birthday, but he's now 44. But um, in the interim period, he's built himself a man shed. So really, <laughs> uh, eh? yeah. So I suppose it's another expression of a midlife crisis, but albeit a fairly healthy one. Um, and that sort of spurred me, you know, to talk about it with my friends who uh, many of them have partners and husbands who have kind of been expressing midlife crisis behavior One had bought a Porsche. Another got a tattoo without telling his wife. Uh, another wants to give up his job and sail around the world in a, in a lovely boat. So, you know, it is definitely uh, <laughs> <Great>. uh, yeah, <laughs> nice if you well. can get it, yeah. exactly. So it's definitely a common thing that manifests itself in midlife, I think. Um,
1: you you were referencing as well the example of the, the sort of celebrity example of Ben Affleck.
4: Yeah, yeah, there is, you know, thankfully my husband didn't have a Ben Affleck moment, didn't run away with the nanny, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, he's definitely in the press at the moment. And it's sort of brought it to the fore a bit more, I think, because of that. But I think women and men definitely experience it, as Brian said. Um, Maybe men are just a bit more flamboyant about it and a bit more novelty seeking or, you know, statement making. Um women, I would I would suggest that women maybe tend to be a bit more subtle about it. And there's this focus on the aging thing a bit more. Um, whereas, you know, men, it's more of a statement, you know, the fast cars or the younger women or, I'm not saying every man is like that now, but <laughs> definitely um, it would tend to be manifest itself in a different way, I think. So
1: with men, does it ultimately come down to uh, a loss of virility at some level? And with women, is it more about loss of looks? Is that too simplistic?
4: Um, I don't think so. I think in men, you know, it's a confidence crisis, I think, ultimately for both men and women. And it's however we we want to deal with that separately. Um, men, it tends to be mainly ego driven um, for for one. Men don't have to contend with the hormones that women do uh, in midlife. But there is a huge societal pressure, I think, on men and women in the mid um, in their in their midlife because there's a physical decline, naturally. Mm. And obviously that's coupled with this huge obsession um, about self-renewal and the aging process. So uh, women tend to sort of maybe express it more in terms of sort of um, you know, uh, f- face fillers, surgery, you know, uh, inappropriate attire, maybe short skirts, more cleavage. Men on the other M- hand. Mutton dressed as lamb. Yeah, pretty I I much. To refer to you, it, yeah. you said it, I didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but men, you know, would maybe I find anyway would t- tend to be more flamboyant about it. Um,
1: OK, uh, Brian, I'm, I, I'm, I'm 47. As far as I know, maybe my wife would disagree. I don't think I've had a midlife crisis. Now, I have to say, I hate getting older. Yeah. I absolutely hate it and it freaking depresses the life
5: out of me. <laughs> well, that's basically, there's your midlife crisis is this, right there, yeah. Really? But <laughs> I'm accepting of it, it? And a- that's pretty cool. Like, you know, see, the thing about it is, is that, you know, we all go through the transition from, from youth into older age. And some of us, exactly what, what, what was been said, basically, that some of us actually just jump and scream about it. Like, you know, go have affairs or go buy big cars. It's the male thing of being blunt a lot of the time. But a lot of men don't. They say, okay, I'm not happy with this. I don't like it. It's the nagging thing that's in the back of my mind all the time. It haunts me. I look in the mirror and I I think about not being able to do what I could do, not as smart as I used to be, not having the impact that I used to have. I'm not happy with that at all. It's a battle, and men are warriors in that way. It's a battle we don't like losing. So, but some of us are more mature about it. Not, and it sounds like <laughs> you're more mature.
4: I don't
1: know if it' more, maybe yeah. I don't know if it' more mature. Well, they're more resigned, probably. More resigned. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably it. In, in a nutshell, I love this text from a listener. My uh, my husband's midlife crisis manifested itself in the buying of a boat. He can't even swim. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, my ex-husband, uh, this is a much more serious. Had an affair to help him through his his midlife crisis. Brian, I mean, obviously not all men who go through midlife crisis have an, have an affair. We should uh, we should stress, sure. but. Can it? Is that the, uh, one of the manifestations? Or can it be one of the manifestations?
5: Well, it definitely can. But here's the deal: one of the things that we got to recognise that basically that there are levels of emotional maturity around things. Okay. So we don't like it. We don't like going through through that. But some people are immature about how they handle it. And an immature thing to do is to say, "Okay, I'm getting older. I'm going to feel younger by having an affair. It doesn't work, you know, basically 99 percent of the time. And even in those relationships, they tend to be imbalanced a lot of the time. So that's a person going with issues into a new relationship. So issues don't get resolved that way. So ultimately, you know, it's not a smart thing to do. It's not an effective thing to do. But what's really critical that it is a time of revaluation. There's two things kind of that operate first. First of all, the person, the demand is slowly, and the woman, slowly and gradually getting hit with this curveball, And eventually kind of it's like a dawning, saying, I can't do anything about this, I'm not winning this one, I don't know what to do. It's at that point they need to literally grieve the youth process, basically to, to let it go and to say, okay, I'm going through this, I'm not happy with one bit at all, and they need to accept that that's okay to not feel okay with that. And from there, then, once they begin to accept that it's literally, basically, that it's crap, it's rubbish, it's not fair, it's, we can't live forever, that type of stuff. Once they come to terms and connect with that, then they can do the rebirth. Remember, you know, midlife crisis is the, is the death of youth, and with youth comes rebirth. So, and it's from there that they can do their stuff, they can do their creativity stuff, they can tap into, and this is what happens, this is where the affairs come from and stuff like that. It's tapping into what I could be capable of. But that can easily express itself on um, picking up uh, an instrument that you used to play or, or wanted to play, or picking up an interest or a hobby or an activity that you've never done before, allowing yourself to become that eccentric person and, and doing the things you didn't do in your youth because you're racing through into, into, into the, the, the mainstream type of thing, part of the rat race. So, a lot of that, has, it's a, that can happen and it's okay to happen, but some people just adapt to it more easily. And I never liked the idea of getting old, but now what I've done is I planned it so that I'm so busy, I'll be too busy, basically, to notice that I'm getting old. That's, that's my way of dealing with it. Okay. And, so, so it's, and that's about, you know, regenerating. And by the way, men, I don't know about women, but men definitely become more prolific around this time as well. So you become much more creative and much more generative as well. And because what happens is, because we're faced against the, the, the death sort of zone, basically, that we decide we
1: need to pursue time yeah. is running out exactly. time that's is exactly running out yeah all yeah. uh, like right one of the things that's try- I mean it's, it's funny I'm just thinking of my own examples where one of my kids that their, their pals were over and I was kind of cracking jokes and my son turned around to me and said you're just trying to be funny because my friends are here at the moment <laughs> and he absolutely nailed it And I, I knew he was right I mean is there a desperation to be kind of to try and still be cool is that Part of it yeah, I if, think if, you know. If you ever cool in the first place, yeah, yeah, I think
4: if you if you catch yourself downloading your your daughter's uh, content of your daughter's iPod, I think you know you should passing it off with your own. You should probably you know, you know, examine yourself. But yeah, I think there definitely is. I mean, as I said, it is a confidence crisis. I think in people, and you know, it's important to to remember that you know to look at what you do have, I suppose, and what's good in your life and. For, for a lot of people, you know, not necessarily a midlife crisis, it could just be a life crisis. And and when I was researching the article that came about in a big way because I spoke to a few different people who who counsellors who were dealing with younger people who were having a um, life crisis um, because of the social media um you know, the pressure on people to sort of have this perfect life. And so I think a crisis can happen at any stage in a mm. life. It just t- tends to be more uh, pronounced in midlife because your happiness levels dip, um, they're at their lowest at around 43 to 45. And depression would tend to occur most in people at 45. So but the the most important thing to remember is it is transient as happiness economists say and it doesn't last. And, um, you know, it is important to maybe look at what's real, what's reality in in those things, like, you know, in terms of the social media thing, really assess what is actually real about that person's life. It's not necessarily that not having a better time than you, you know, so. um, But ultimately, it does pass and it is transient. And it is really when people sort of, you know, old age is sort of creeping up and uh, they're trying to regain some virility and all that sort of stuff, but it, you know, it is, it is, it is, it will pass.
1: Okay, lots of texts coming in and they say it's not a midlife crisis, it's midlife epiphany and realization <laughs> of the mediocrity and pointlessness of the life today that most people lead. Uh, that's from Jean Paul Sartre, obviously. Uh, Una says, uh, Shane, age never bothered me until I hit 66 earlier this year. Uh, suddenly, the term bus pass hit me and I went into decline. It conjured up awful images for me because I'm really only 55 in my head. I'm slowly recovering. Una, I can. I mean, I'm not 66, but I can absolutely identify with that. I still think I'm 30 in my head for some reason. Uh, Eva says, Shane, no such thing as mutton dressed as lamb. They both wear the same outfit. Everyone mm-hmm. should wear whatever he or she wants. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, just to finish with you, Brian, if if there's, a, if there's somebody listening to this and they, and they, they sort of recognise the symptoms that they're going through a midlife crisis, I mean, you're saying... It's, it's absolutely normal to do yeah. that, but I mean, it, there's, there's a note of caution there as well, isn't there? Don't, don't sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater.
5: Exactly. You, you build a lot. You know, you're going through midlife basically say, the bottom line is, is, yes, you're facing old age and yes, you don't like it. And it's okay to moan and whinge and whine about it. That's perfectly valid. You need to vent in order to integrate. That's that's the number one thing. So it's okay to do that. It's okay to moan about it. Even if, even if you're to moan by yourself, but verbalize it and vent it because it's important. Because it's you're not supposed to be happy with it. It's not natural to be happy with that. Despite what people will say, you should integrate. No, first you have to complain and then you can integrate, and that's okay. But remember this and keep this in mind. Exactly what Arla says. It is transient. But here's the other cool stuff: is that. When, what what happens is people put you in the old age bracket and that gives you a license to do so many things. Basically, You can get away with so much because you say, I'm old, what would I know? Basically, so it's time to have fun, you know, and that's where Jean- Jean-Paul Sartre says it's epiphany. You begin to realize you can get away with so much. But the, the real thing is is to begin to build, and it is about rebirth. So it is about rebuilding, redesigning, revamping, valuing time, beginning to go after, building what you want, uh, Keep what you've got. That's so important because the bottom line is, remember, if it's your partner, if you're thinking in that way, basically, your partner is aging too, basically. So the thing about it is, is that you will build really good stuff together with someone that's on your same level. It, you know, shifting through, and I know it's, it might not be politically correct to say these things, but shifting through different generations very often doesn't really work. So when you sh- shift from a, an older generation to a younger, younger generation, that produces a whole load of other stresses that very often is the okay. best. Okay. Sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. All right. But, you know, I would say, hold on to what you got and build new.
1: OK, good advice there. Tony says, me and my friends must be fierce, boring. No boats, bikes or babes. I think you're just, as, uh, as Brian would say, you're just mature, uh, Tony. OK, my thanks to Orlan Elgan, editor, journalist and owner of uh, Corner Shop Productions, and Brian Colbert, psychotherapist and best-selling author of The Happiness Habit and From Ordinary to Extraordinary."